0: Hi there, and welcome to Time for Chai, the podcast series where leaders in manufacturing, commodities, risk, supply chain management, and digital technology come to share truly actionable insight based on real world experiences. I'm your host, Jake Jacobs, head of growth at Chai. So, today it gives me great pleasure to introduce my guest, Steve Wall, owner and chairman of the Sequoia Partnership. You'll probably hate me for saying this, but Steve is a legend of supply chain management. Over 30 years, He is, for over 30 years, he has worked with the likes of Unilever, PepsiCo, Tesco, GSK, and Nestle, advising them on supply chain resilience and masterminding the delivery of programs worth hundreds of millions of pounds. Many of these global brands count on Steve as a trusted advisor to this very day. Apart from his impressive business credentials, Steve is also a thoroughly good bloke, who has been tremendously helpful both to Chai and to my own efforts to navigate the world of manufacturing and supply chain management. Welcome, Steve. Great to have you on.
1: Hi, Jake. Thanks for having me.
0: No worries. So, Steve, why don't we kick off with your take on the current situation? What is it you're seeing with, with the customers you know, that you're working with today? And then what's your view of it?
1: So I should emphasize our area is FMCG supply chains. Yeah, so typically the, the list of companies that you um, described. I think you know people watching this will have noted the initial Panic phase, when the supermarkets were stripped there, basically. But it, we'll come back to this probably, but I don't like the word panic. I don't think it was panic. So even relatively modest changes in demand behavior would cause that effect. Yes. Uh, but certainly that put our clients into uh, crisis mode, into a firefight. Then there was a lull, because essentially people you know, built up a certain amount of um, domestic stock. And... Uh, once they had enough, then uh, demand uh, slumped, and it's kind of stabilised really to a very large extent. So we're in a kind of new normal. But um, in the moment, you know, by and large, you know, demand is stable, and the um, the supply chain has uh, has risen to the challenge in uh, in many cases. Uh, most of our clients have done significant colour products, so they've reduced their range. So they can take Dairies, for instance, you'll find probably the pints and six pints have vanished and they're concentrating just in order to shift volume, uh, on the sort of, um, you know, sort of two point four pint format. And you'll have seen that across the range is that the minus views have, have disappeared just in terms of sheer production and supply chain efficiency. Yeah. But, um, and that will stay like that until we reach some sort of exit strategy. And, but now I think people are. Turning their minds to wondering what next, really, That's what it boils down to. So we are where we are.
0: Interesting. And have you found yourself giving your clients any kind of consistent advice? You know, is, is there are there kind a of few a few nuggets that have come up uh, time and time again over this current period?
1: So certainly during the firefight phase, we really couldn't give them any advice, I think, and, and they didn't particularly want any advice because. They were uh, they were working too hard to adjust to a very very fast-moving situation, but of course, the you know, firefighting is quite fun for a lot of people. So you had very senior vice presidents entering into the firefight. I don't really know how much help they were, but um, they <laughs> that they were being useful. So a consistent advice to the senior guys was: look, pretty soon people are going to look at you and ask you what your plan is. Mm. Um, so you need to have one. So um, trying to get people out of firefight as soon as they could and move them towards, you know, scenario planning, really. We are in a situation where the past is no longer any good guide to the future. Mm. So all of the normal supply chain forecasting and replenishment models no longer work, really supermarkets, one of the early things that they had to do was to simply switch off their replenishment systems because they were going crazy. We had, we had clients getting orders from big supermarkets that were 10 times their normal order. size. What happened was those orders were simply rejected really? in totality. So they had to cut over to a sort of manual process. Going forward, are we going to exit and stay exited? Are we going to follow the university college model of sort of a, a pulsed exit, you know, exit, lockdown again, exit, lockdown again, mm. as, the, um, as the epidemic waxes and wanes? Or are we potentially going to exit and see a, a, a rapid resurgence into mm. a, effectively a second wave that may even be worse than the first wave? And our advice uh, to all clients is to start thinking about that and start planning for that. And also start using the data sources, which are massive, really, albeit inconsistent, to then try to track what is happening. You know, early signs in Germany of a little bit of a kind of pickup after they relaxed. early signs in Japan, in Hokkaido, of a, uh, a pickup after they relax. But in other markets signs that um you know like new zealand they're, they're basically keeping it down you know so we have some scenario plans in place but monitor the situation and work out which way you need to jump and which way you need to move
0: that's really really interesting to to hear and i just want to step back, step back for a second you mentioned earlier about how this is kind of without precedence, and it's not really possible to look backwards to look forwards anymore do you not feel like there's kind of parallels between what's going on now and maybe you know, the realities of supply chain around things like the '08 crash, financial crash, or any kind of previous you know, big moments, I guess, in recent history?
1: Well, first of all, let's, let's come back to the fact that I'm thinking about FMCG supply chains. Sure. And um, they are, generally speaking, in terms of a normal recession, in terms of a normal demand-side recession, hmm. very resilient natural fact and broadly speaking barely notice them to be mm. honest with you. This is unprecedented. This is like nothing that's, uh, that's happened before. So we had simultaneously so if, if you if you take, you know, from an FMCG point of view, the lockdown. So in in revenue terms, more than fifty percent of food is consumed outside the home normally. Mm-hmm. And that would be in sort of restaurants and cafes, but also in sort of out of home consumption like uh, you know grab and go type facilities and things like that and that more or less went to zero overnight so if you imagine the way the supply chain is structured let's take flour for instance, mm-hmm. only four percent of flour is normally distributed via retailers, and so if you go into your Supermarket and try to buy flour right, anytime in the last four or five weeks, you probably haven't been able to. Mm. Um, and it looks like panic buying, but actually, it only takes, let's say, 10% of the population to decide they're going to bake bread at home. Yeah. And tripled consumption for flour through retail channels.
2: Mm.
1: And of course, none of the mills are tooled up to pack into retail formats. So 96% of flour is. Tankered or sent in large sacks or bulk containers and they can't suddenly switch to putting it in one kilo bags they don't have the facility the same thing happens with pepsico so pepsico's out of home and in-home formats are different and the production lines are different so seeing a a kind of switch from one to the other is, is is very difficult for them but then if you take somewhere like london for instance so that the population of westminster normally doubles during the working day but it no longer does (laughs) and so early on when most of the supermarkets were empty in westminster they were full (laughs)
2: because
1: their their demand had collapsed because nobody was going there Um, so these shifts of demand geographically and shifts of format are the, are the things that are giving difficulty. This is why I don't like the term panic buying.
2: Hmm.
1: Because, you know, if you're being told instead of shopping every few days to shop weekly, yeah, the, if you're not sure of the supply side, then you know, actually doubling the amount you buy makes complete sense. And it's a perfectly rational thing to do. But doubling the amount you buy and shifting the demand geographically and changing the formats was an enormous task for the uh, FMCG supply chain to kind of respond to. And actually, it's done a phenomenal job. I mean, I'm mildly amazed (laughs) that it wasn't far, far, because simultaneously, they were coping with 20 30% absenteeism, plus having to shut down lines in order to maintain social distancing. Now, our, uh, one of our clients can only operate every other line because otherwise they can't maintain social distancing. So, yeah, very, 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 very unprecedented. Nothing like that has happened before. And that means that all of your statistical markets that normally sort of take, shall we say, you know, the last 10 or 12 weeks and project them forward with an adjustment for the season, that's out the window. That's not happening anymore. And everybody's time scales have contracted. So I think the guys that were thinking strategically mm-hmm. are now having to think tactically. So instead of thinking about sort of three to five years, they're having to think about sort of you know, six, to, six to 18 months. And the guys that were planning, you know, over the sort of uh, three month horizon are now planning from week to week, really.
0: Yeah, really interesting stuff. And I guess. You know, like you say, you keep kind of highlighting the big thing is is the uncertainty, is the uncertainty, and that there are a few different scenarios that we can imagine and we can kind of preempt. But uncertainty really is the the big factor in all of this. You know, how are you advising your clients? Could you talk a bit, a bit more about how you're advising your clients on ways to mitigate uncertainty?
1: Yeah. So. In normal times, we are advising clients that there are sort of two sort of fundamental planning processes. One is sales operations planning, which effectively looks sort of three to 18 months ahead. Mm -hmm. Based on, you know, reasonably good statistical forecasts and based on the belief that you can predict to a certain extent what is going to happen and plan for it. But the other is sales and operations execution, which is operating inside the frozen period. So you know a retailer comes to you and says, "I've got an opportunity, but you need to kind of decide now, and you need to get it to our stores in the next two weeks or whatever." And, and that's where kind of agility uh, comes in. Mm-hmm. But the balance of those two activities needs to change now. So we need to boost the agility. We need to boost the, the sales and operations execution process. And that means very good cross-functional teams. So when something, when an event happens, which may be a demand event, it may be a supply event, it may be a sudden surge in absenteeism or whatever, different skills are needed. So you need a kind of cross-functional team that's collaborating, trapping the event, recording it, assigning it to the right group, responding to it, and also sort of maintaining a kind of performance measure of what's our event list looking like and how are we doing it, kind of uh, dealing with them. And so that's the sort of processes that need to be developed. And actually, companies that were already good at that have done well, and companies that were not so good at it have developed an awful lot of skills in that area. Which will stand them in very good stead going forward, you know. So I think we're going to see a persisting improvement in agility and in cross-functional working and management culture in the best in the best companies. You know.
0: Really, really interesting to hear, actually. Hello, I'm Stephen Butler, Chief Commercial Officer at Chai. Here at Chai, we're working hard to try and provide people like yourselves who are involved in the industry with the correct insights and data that will help you make the critical decisions in these uncertain times. If you would like to learn more about our service, please check out our company website chai-uk.com or follow our market updates on LinkedIn. Thank you very much and please enjoy the show. Um, and so that kind of leads into my next question. One of the realities that we foresee for the manufacturing industry after the, the virus, after COVID-19 has passed, is the unraveling of global supply chains. You know, what, what do you think about that? Do you feel like there is a need to make manufacturers more robust to them unraveling by sourcing from multiple locations, near-shoring, that kind of thing?
1: I'll come back to the fact that I'm FMCG focused. Yeah. So, Consumers have got used to the idea that they can get anything they want any time of the year. Yeah, you don't worry too much about how that's achieved, uh, really. We we will have, I think, this year a fresh product problem. So obviously, there's a there's a fresh product shipping problem from simply the places that, that it comes from. So seventy five percent of our Seasonal fresh produce comes from Spain, for instance, and that's, they're they're gonna have harvest problems and there's gonna be problems getting it to us. Um, We're gonna have problems with our own harvests. It is possible that this will trigger, again, a kind of persistent change in consumer behavior. And uh, this idea that you can just have, uh, you know, any produce any time of the year may change. If that changes, then there are opportunities to change sourcing, really. I'm a bit old and cynical, and I think consumers will go back to their old ways pretty quickly after the <laughs> pandemic subsides. Memories are surprisingly short. Take Russia, you know, as an example, which I'm reasonably familiar with. So during the Soviet times, they were supply constrained constantly. And something like 40% of their food was grown themselves in their own duchess, basically. And they stored their own potatoes, and they stored their own carrots and everything, and they worked to the seasons. The speed with which that changed after the end of the Soviet era, and it became just like another Western market. You could get a red pepper any time of the year you wanted you know, was astonishing. So, you know, consumers like that capability, and I think they'll go back to it. Mm-hmm. If they go back to it, I think the supply chains will go back to how they were, really. I think that the best companies will review their business continuity planning. They will review their crisis management processes, and uh, they will hopefully better prepare it next time. But in terms of anything remotely like this, there's a good chance that the next time will be an essentially yeah. <laughs> from that, you know. We don't have too many managers that were around during the 1919 Spanish flu <laughs> to ask for help. So these are very rare events.
0: Interesting. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, so yeah. let's like kind of pivot, you know, and, and talk a bit more now about the kind of acts of some of the large name FMCG brands and how they're supporting their supply chains specifically. I don't know if you can talk about kind of any any examples from what you've seen, anything like this at all. It would be really interesting and helpful for the listeners.
1: Yeah, hugely responsible behaviour actually in in the in the big guys. I know they're often portrayed as you know sort of uh, self-seeking profit monsters, but um, first of all, great care for their workforces. All, all of our big clients, so Brenner Ricard, and uh, Pepsi. Uh, and Campari implemented protection measures for their uh, workforce. They understood and supported their workforces if they, if they were simply too anxious to come into work. So although they could keep the manufacturing facilities going, uh, so you, you can imagine during the sort of early part of the Italian situation that people were simply reluctant to uh, going to work even though they were in principle allowed to. And I think a lot of understanding was shown about that. A lot of uh, the com- companies implemented line-side monitoring, health monitoring facilities, temperature monitoring facilities, etc. They were very responsible in terms of, you know, uh, several of them sort of shut down factories for a while while they painted lines on the floor and got all the, you know, separation rules in place, really, and kind of understood what they were doing. They also, in my experience, su- supported their supply base. So I've known of instances where they were basically paying small suppliers, even though they were no longer supplying them, just because of, they felt there was a need to you know, help to keep people afloat, really, because they understood the stress that people were under. So yeah, I, all I've seen is hugely responsible behavior towards workers and towards suppliers, uh, in actual right. fact. Some of them are thinking there may be opportunities to gain market share, you know, um, if they get the recovery right. So they're deploying cash reserves to make sure they're ready to fill up any empty supermarket space that might occur because their uh, their competitors didn't quite manage to get their act together.
0: Interesting. Uh,
1: so you'd expect people to do that, really. Of course. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been remarkable, really.
0: It really does feel like... Um you yeah, know two things kind of come to mind in a lot of ways it feels as though this could actually end up being a very positive thing for not just supermarkets but also for fmcg for the specific businesses that are able to kind of really take the ball by the horns and see this as an opportunity in a lot of ways and on the the second point i'd make is that you know the silver lining it feels as though maybe worker sentiment and people's you know the population sentiment towards some of these big brands maybe got a bit more kind of positive you said earlier about how they've stepped away from being these kind of faceless you know big just money hungry kind of entities yeah and it's bringing kind of people closer together in a lot of ways and, and creating stronger bonds between different companies and different departments
1: maybe everybody's stressed you know uh, this is the thing. This a very stressful time for period. and they're still stressed and um, i think people react to stress in different ways they will, they will sort of throw accusations and criticism around I think uh, kind of under stress but um, uh, I think the you know people's value sets at the moment are adjusting a bit you know you notice the type of things that people did stockpile all mm. the staple goods were the ones that went so the stuff that people take for granted has leapt to the top of their priority list sure and the, the nice to have stuff that might be interesting to try they just don't really care about anymore at the moment so that may persist for a while, really. It's, it's, it's hard to know, I think, Jake, how long will this affect people's behaviour? To what extent will this persist in people's memories? I'm sure there will be some years during which people are quite unnerved by this. It's actually possible that COVID itself will be, will be fighting it for some years. I mean, the only long-term stable situation is that it becomes... You know, a bit more like flu, but uh, it mutates and it becomes a, a bit of a kind of a seasonal problem, but it's not going to go away and it may be serious for some years to come. It's going to be, I think, two or three years before we've got effective vaccines, if possible, or treatments, if not. Um, so so we, we could be seeing, you know, changes in consumer behavior for certainly sort of three to five years, I think. Um, and that that should affect, I think, people's thought
0: processes and planning. Interesting. Interesting stuff. So just a couple more kind of questions from me before we wrap it up. Do you foresee any kind of, is there kind of much focus around cost reduction by attempting to fix material prices in FMCG, commodities prices in FMCG?
1: No. If you mean right now and as a result of the pandemic, and that is certainly kind of not a priority at the moment. Mm-hmm. Actually, quite a few prices and costs. Well, you know, the notable one is oil, you know, yeah. which uh, kind of collapsed. But actually, so if you care to have a look at it, the price of cream has collapsed. Cream is an interesting one. So I, I said that, you know, people were interested in staples. So milk is a staple. So people are buying milk. They don't really care about cream, so they're not buying it. Unfortunately, for a dairy, cream comes with milk. You know, they don't know. So they skim the cream out. They've got to do something with it yeah and um, they make out a lot of butter. You know? okay. <laughs> uh, so're we're, we're basically seeing, and, and obviously you know anything that is oil related, you know, all the plastics and stuff like that, the prices will come down fairly dramatically. so we're, we're, we are seeing very big kind of price swings in, in certain areas,. Uh, really, I think we may have some problems during the recovery. So let's come back to milk as a kind of analogy. So you can't turn cows on and off very easily. At the moment, we've got a bit of a milk glut in some areas, and uh, so they're having to shut down herds. And it takes months to start a herd up again. So when they open sort of coffee shops and things and the milk demand goes up, the supply won't be there. Hmm. Um, and so we will see prices hike. I'm sure of it, basically. Same is happening with oil. You know, they're going to be shutting down the supply of oil. Now, the difference between milk and oil is there's going to be enormous stocks of oil. So I'm not quite sure uh, that it will be, you know, uh, dramatic, but, um, we, we are going to move from oversupply to under supply. Um, I'm pretty sure of that. And I think we'll do that. In a, in a number of areas and a number of commodities as things get switched back on. Right? So I think that's one to watch out for during the recovery period. As we open up the out-of-home and we go back to the previous set of product formats and things, all of the kind of packaging and all of the commodities and all of the demands, for those things will potentially surge as rapidly as they collapse,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: the supply won't be there. So. Let's see what happens.
0: Interesting stuff. And on that note, Steve, is there anything else, any kind of last thoughts that you want to share that you think would be, you know, helpful to people in industry kind of fighting these fires right now?
1: The the only thing I think is, you know, we we are going to, we're entering an age of persistent uncertainty and that's not going to be resolved anytime soon. This is not going to go back to normal in a few months. That is not going to happen. So I think cross-functional collaboration scenario planning and agility are needed more than ever. But I think probably other supply chains and sectors can learn from FMCG about that. Uh, it's something that FMCG is traditionally quite good at. But uh, this is not going to go back to normal anytime soon. Uh, really. So uh, you've got to keep your eyes on the road and stay alert.
0: So I guess, you know, based on kind of what you said earlier, one of the kind of crucial elements in all of this, you know, supply chain management, forecasting, the scenario analysis, is the data that people are are using to make their decisions, right?
1: There's been more data available globally, you know, Google and Apple Trends, all of the John Hopkins research, all of the Oxford modelling and UC modelling, all made publicly available, massive amounts of data. If you try to use it, you immediately discover that although there's a lot of it, it's hideously inconsistent and confusing. But people are going to be poring over this for you know for the next year, I think. Um, and we're not really going to know what happened. We're not really going to know what was the best policy, who the winners and losers were for quite a while. So.
0: I guess that's why your uh, very impressive client base turns to you to make sense of the inconsistencies and the things that they're they're not seeing. So.
1: We we chip in, you know. We make a, a small contribution to what are already very good teams
0: thinking about this. Great, great stuff, Steve. Steve, it's been really great to talk to you. If uh, if you want to get in touch with Steve, and I'd really encourage you to do so if you have any queries or questions around FMCG supply chain management. Steve is the chairman of Sequoia Partnership. You can look Sequoia up online. Sequoia-uk.com. That's S-E-Q-U-O-I-A-uk.com and uh steve's contact details will be on, on the podcast notes thanks very much for today so that's it for today as always please do get in touch if you feel like you've got something different to say and you'd like to come on the podcast as a future guest if you've also got any themes topics or people you'd like us to interview in future episodes again let me know my email address is jake at chai uk.com if you enjoyed time for chai i'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Today's podcast was produced by Alejandro Girón of Girón Co. Podcasting Services. Special thanks to my colleagues Stephen Butler, Chris Evans, and Marcus Dixon. It was written and hosted by myself, Jake Jacobs. Have a great week. See you next time.